Welcome to the Perennials Podcast Book Club. I'm Victoria Russell, and you're listening to Chapter 31 of Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery. Before I get into the chapter, I just want to let you know about my guest for today's reflections. Today, I have Tabrija Jones joining me for the reflections after the chapter reading. Tabrija is a New York Public Library librarian and the creator of the blog Cup of Tea with That Book, Please. She was also a guest on the Perennials podcast, episode three. I think I may have misspoken in the episode for chapter 30 last week and said that my guest Olivia Arnold was on episode three of Perennials. I totally misspoke. Olivia was episode seven. Tabrija was episode three. (laughs) Today, Tabrija and I talk about entering the teenage years and what it's like to kind of have all these different expectations and pressures, a little bit more responsibility and thinking about the future than when you're a child and different things that you're expected or expecting yourself to live up to. So that's really what we dive into today. Tabrija has some really interesting thoughts on the characters of Marilla and Miss Stacy in particular, and she tells us a little bit about where she would have gone if she had had the uh, nerve to cut school when she was 15. Enjoy. Chapter 31, Where the Brook and River Meet. Anne had her good summer and enjoyed it wholeheartedly. She and Diana fairly lived outdoors, reveling in all the delights that Lover's Lane and the Dryad's Bubble and Willowmere and Victoria Island afforded. Marilla offered no objections to Anne's gypsyings. The Spencervale doctor who had come the night Minnie May had the croup met Anne at the house of a patient one afternoon early in vacation, looked her over sharply, screwed up his mouth, shook his head, and sent a message to Marilla Cuthbert by another person. It was, "'Keep that red-headed girl of yours in the open air all summer, and don't let her read books until she gets more spring into her step.'" This message frightened Marilla wholesomely. She read Anne's death warrant by consumption in it, unless it was scrupulously obeyed. As a result, Anne had the golden summer of her life as far as freedom and frolic went. She walked, rode, buried, and dreamed to her heart's content, and when September came she was bright-eyed and alert, with a step that would have satisfied the Spencervale doctor and a heart full of ambition and zest once more. "'I feel just like studying with might and main,' she declared as she brought her books down from the attic. "'Oh, you good old friends, I'm glad to see your honest faces once more. Yes, even you, geometry. I've had a perfectly beautiful summer, Marilla, and now I'm rejoicing as a strong man to run a race, as Mr. Allen said last Sunday. Doesn't Mr. Allen preach magnificent sermons?' Mrs. Lynch says he is improving every day, and the first thing we know some city church will gobble him up, and then we'll be left and have to turn and break in another green preacher. But I don't see the use of meeting trouble halfway, do you, Marilla? I think it would be better just to enjoy Mr. Allen while we have him. If I were a man, I think I'd be a minister. They can have such an influence for good, if their theology is sound, and it must be thrilling to preach splendid sermons and stir your hearers' hearts. Why can't women be ministers, Marilla? I asked Mrs. Lynde that, and she was shocked, and said it would be a scandalous thing. She said there might be female ministers in the States, and she believed there was, but thank goodness we hadn't got to that stage in Canada yet, and she hoped we never would. But I don't see why. I think women would make splendid ministers. When there is a social to be got up, or a church tea, or anything else to raise money, the women have to turn to and do the work. I'm sure Mrs. Lynde can pray every bit as well as Superintendent Bell, and I've no doubt she could preach too with a little practice. Yes, I believe she could said Marilla dryly. She does plenty of unofficial preaching as it is. Nobody has much of a chance to go run in Avonlea with Rachel to oversee them. Marilla, said Anne in a burst of confidence, I want to tell you something and ask you what you think about it. It has worried me terribly. On Sunday afternoons, that is, when I think specially about such matters. I do really want to be good, and when I'm with you or Mrs. Allen or Miss Stacy, I want it more than ever, and I want to do just what would please you and what you would approve of. But mostly when I'm with Mrs. Lynde, I feel desperately wicked and as if I wanted to go and do the very thing she tells me I oughtn't to do. I feel irresistibly tempted to do it. Now, what do you think is the reason I feel like that? Do you think it's because I'm really bad and unregenerate? Marilla looked dubious for a moment. Then she laughed. If you are, I guess I am too, Anne, for Rachel often has that very effect on me. I sometimes think she'd have more of an influence for good, as you say yourself, if she didn't keep nagging people to do right. There should have been a special commandment against nagging. 
But there, I shouldn't talk so. Rachel is a good Christian woman, and she means well. There isn't a kinder soul in Avonlea, and she never shirks her share of work. I'm very glad you feel the same, said Anne decidedly. It's so encouraging. I shan't worry so much over that after this. But I dare say there will be other things to worry me. They keep coming up new all the time. Things to perplex you, you know? You settle one question, and there's another right after. There are so many things to be thought over and decided when you're beginning to grow up. It keeps me busy all the time thinking them over and deciding what is right. It's a serious thing to grow up, isn't it, Marilla? But when I have such good friends as you and Matthew and Mrs. Allen and Miss Stacy, I ought to grow up successfully, and I'm sure it will be by my own fault if I don't. I feel it's a great responsibility because I have only the one chance. If I don't grow up right, I can't go back and begin over again. I've grown two inches this summer, Marilla. Mr. Gillis measured me at Ruby's party. I'm so glad you made my new dresses longer. That dark green one is so pretty, and it was so sweet of you to put on the flounce. Of course, I know it wasn't really necessary, but flounces are so stylish this fall, and Josie Pye has flounces on all her dresses. I know I'll be able to study better because of mine. I shall have such a comfortable feeling deep down in my mind about that flounce. It's worth something to have that, admitted Marilla. Miss Stacy came back to Avonlea School and found all her pupils eager for work once more. Especially did the Queen's class gird up their loins for the fray, for at the end of the coming year, dimly shadowing their pathway already, loomed up that fateful thing known as the entrance, at the thought of which one and all felt their hearts sink into their very shoes. Suppose they did not pass. That thought was doomed to haunt Anne through the waking hours of that winter, Sunday afternoons inclusive, to the almost entire exclusion of moral and theological problems. When Anne had bad dreams, she found herself staring miserably at past lists of the entrance exams, where Gilbert Blythe's name was blazoned at the top, and in which hers did not appear at all. But it was a jolly, busy, happy, swift-flying winter. Schoolwork was as interesting, class rivalry as absorbing, as of yore. New worlds of thought, feeling, and ambition, fresh, fascinating fields of unexplored knowledge, seemed to be opening out before Anne's eager eyes. Hills peeped o'er hill, and Alps on Alps arose. Much of all this was due to Miss Stacy's tactful, careful, broad-minded guidance. She led her class to think and explore and discover for themselves, and encouraged straying from the old beaten paths to a degree that quite shocked Mrs. Lynde and the school trustees, who viewed all innovations on established methods rather dubiously. Apart from her studies, Anne expanded socially, for Marilla, mindful of the Spencervale doctor's dictum, no longer vetoed occasional outings. The debating club flourished and gave several concerts. There were one or two parties almost verging on grown-up affairs. There were sleigh drives and skating frolics galore. Between times, Anne grew, shooting up so rapidly that Marilla was astonished one day when they were standing side by side to find the girl was taller than herself. "'Why, Anne, how you've grown!' she said, almost unbelievingly. A sigh followed on the words. Marilla felt a queer regret over Anne's inches. The child she had learned to love had vanished somehow, and here was this tall, serious-eyed girl of fifteen, with the thoughtful brow and the proudly poised little head in her place. Marilla loved the girl as much as she had loved the child, but she was conscious of a queer, sorrowful sense of loss. And that night, when Anne had gone to prayer meeting with Diana, Marilla sat alone in the wintry twilight and indulged in the weakness of a cry. Matthew, coming in with a lantern, caught her at it and gazed at her in such consternation that Marilla had to laugh through her tears. "'I was thinking about Anne,' she explained. "'She's got to be such a big girl, and she'll probably be away from us next winter. I'll miss her terrible. She'll be able to come home often.' comforted Matthew, to whom Anne was as yet and always would be the little, eager girl he had brought home from Bright River on that June evening four years before. The Branch Railroad will be built to Carmody by that time. It won't be the same thing as having her here all the time, sighed Marilla gloomily, determined to enjoy her luxury of grief uncomforted. But there, men can't understand these things. There were other changes in Anne no less real than the physical change. For one thing, she became much quieter, Perhaps she thought all the more and dreamed as much as ever, but she certainly talked less. Marilla noticed and commented on this also. "'You don't chatter half as much as you used to, Anne, nor use half as many big words. What has come over you?' Anne colored and laughed a little, as she dropped her book and looked dreamily out of the window, where big fat red buds were bursting out on the creeper in response to the lure of the spring sunshine. "'I don't know. I don't want to talk as much,' she said, denting her chin thoughtfully with her forefinger. It's nicer to think dear, pretty thoughts and keep them in one's heart like treasures. I don't like to have them laughed at or wondered over. 
and somehow I don't want to use big words anymore. It's almost a pity, isn't it, now that I'm really growing big enough to say them if I did want to? It's fun to be almost grown up in some ways, but it's not the kind of fun I expected, Marilla. There's so much to learn and do and think that there isn't time for big words. Besides, Miss Stacy says the short ones are much stronger and better. She makes us write all our essays as simply as possible. It was hard at first. I was so used to crowding in all the fine big words I could think of, and I thought of any number of them. But I've got used to it now, and I see it so much better. What has become of your story club? I haven't heard you speak of it for a long time. The story club isn't in existence any longer. We hadn't time for it, and anyhow I think we had got tired of it. It was silly to be writing about love and murder and elopements and mysteries. Miss Stacy sometimes has us write a story for training and composition, but she won't let us write anything but what might happen in Avonlea in our own lives, and she criticizes it very sharply, and makes us criticize our own, too. I never thought my compositions had so many faults until I began to look for them myself. I felt so ashamed I wanted to give up altogether, but Miss Stacy said I could learn to write well if I only trained myself to be my own severest critic, and so I am trying to. You've only two more months before the entrance, said Marilla. Do you think you'll be able to get through? Anne shivered. I don't know. Sometimes I think I'll be all right, and then I get horribly afraid. We've studied hard and Miss Stacy has drilled us thoroughly, but we mayn't get through for all that. We've each got a stumbling block. Mine is geometry, of course, and Jane's is Latin, and Ruby's and Charlie's is algebra, and Josie's is arithmetic. Moody Spurgeon says he feels it in his bones that he is going to fail in English history. Miss Stacy is going to give us examinations in June just as hard as we'll have at the entrance, and Marcus just as strictly, so we'll have some idea. I wish it was all over, Marilla. It haunts me. Sometimes I wake up in the night and wonder what I'll do if I don't pass. Why go to school next year and try again? said Marilla unconcernedly. Oh, I don't believe I'd have the heart for it. It would be such a disgrace to fail, especially if Gil, if the others passed. And I get so nervous in an examination that I'm likely to make a mess of it. I wish I had nerves like Jane Andrews. Nothing rattles her. Anne sighed, and, dragging her eyes from the witcheries of the spring world, the beckoning day of breeze and blue, and the green things upspringing in the garden, buried herself resolutely in her book. There would be other springs, but if she did not succeed in passing the entrance, Anne felt convinced that she would never recover sufficiently to enjoy them. Okay. Tabrija, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Victoria. Our resident librarian is back. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I've been starting these and reflections with my special guests by asking what everyone's relationship to Anne of Green Gables is. So whether this is like your first read or a childhood favorite or, you know, what's your relationship to Anne? Well, this is my first time reading it. However, it was my mother's favorite book when she was a child. So when um, this um, book club started, it was like, now is the perfect time to pick it up and start reading it. And I absolutely fell in love with it. I, I, I have other stuff to read, but I'm definitely going to read the second book. I can't wait to read that one. Oh, that makes me so happy. Was your mom happy when you told her you were going to read it? Yeah, she was like, oh my God, really? (laughs) She's like, you love it. And then we talked about it and it was just like, it was a fun experience to have. That's really nice. What do you think has made you fall in love with it? Oh man. Um, Well, the description of nature Mm -hmm. was like a big thing. Because especially, like, during this time, you can go out as much. So to imagine, like, the flowers and the trees blooming, it was just an amazing visual experience. But then also the childlike manner of Anne, how her imagination is just, like, enormous, and it just runs with her. And it just, like, it makes you think back to when you were a child. And when your imagination was so big, like, and sometimes it makes you think like, like, why can't we still have that kind of personality? You can still be a grown up, but you can also experience like things and dreams beyond your, um, beyond your imagination. So it's just like amazing to read a character like that. That is something that's really struck me as well. The the descriptions of nature and kind of that 
escape, <laughs> but also it, it's like, it's an escape, but I feel like, like you're saying, it also reminds us to look for those things in our own lives now. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Cause we're all like thinking of how, what our future is going to be like, especially now. And I think it's just like a very wide opening experience to go back to something that was published years ago. And then it can still have some like relevant connection to, um, to the present. Yeah. Okay. I have some quote unquote lightning round questions. They don't really have to be like lightning. You can, (laughs) you can explain your responses a little bit, however much you want to talk about them. So which character do you identify with the most in this book? Or maybe it's a couple of characters whose different parts you relate to strongly. I have to say Anne. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, because I know she reminds me a lot when I when I was growing up. Like, I mean, there's some things that I like. I wish I could have done that she did. That she was very bold in saying, um, like, when she would tell off an adult, like, listen, what you said was completely rude and stuff, and I'm gonna apologize to you anyway. No, I would have been like, yeah, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said yeah. That. <laughs> Um, but her bold tenacity and cause I, I, when I was a kid, my imagination always ran, ran away with me. And, but then as I grew older, then I started, you know, become serious about my work and stuff. And so I feel like a little bit of a connection with Anne. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite mess up moment? from Anne? I think when, <laughs> when she accidentally gave, um, her friend, I, I forgot, I'm, I forgot her oh, name. Oh, Diana. Diana, yes, um, when she gave her friend Diana alcohol. <laughs> that was so funny, because I was like, I would have totally did that, because, I mean, I thought back to when, when I was a kid, um, I was at a party, and um, I had a glass of ginger ale, but then I forgot where I put it. And then I see a similar glass. I was like, oh, this is ginger ale. I took a drink. It was not ginger ale. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. rum. <laughs> it was like the color, like the way it was mixed, it looked exactly the same as ginger ale. I, it was just like, I would have done exactly like Anne. Mm-hmm. I would have given someone alcohol or something else so that one was my favorite mess up (laughs) I know that one is so innocent and it's like so not her fault really um it's not it's a really innocent little childlike mistake and the fact that she's like being so generous she's like here Diana have more you know like (laughs) she thinks she's being so generous and oh it's so sweet yeah that's a good one um, do you have a, a favorite bringing up moment? So like a moment when one of the adults in Anne's life does like a really good job um, guiding her or responding to one of her mistakes or something that kind of helps her grow or. I don't think I can pick a particular one because I think a lot of the interactions with um, Marilla Cause I feel like even though sometimes she can be hard on her, it just like, it, um, keeps going to, um, Anne's personality it, it, it enables her to like, you know, become the person that she becomes. I don't want to spoil anything towards the end of the novel. And also in the same way, Marilla start, it also grows as well. So that, I feel like that kind of partnership and relationship that I think that that's why I was focusing on that because they were both growing at the same time with their close relationship. Yeah. I love what you said about how Marilla is growing. And actually I think this chapter is a great example of -hmm. that. There are a couple moments that I wrote down. I was like, Marilla, you did it. (laughs) You were a person with the heart and you showed it. (laughs) Um, So I, I, okay. So I just have one more question for this little lightning round before we, we get into the chapter. 
do you have a piece of wisdom or a lesson from this book that you've taken with you? It is never too late to think and be like a child. Mm. Yeah, it's never too late to think and be like a child. Because you're, you're it, it's nothing wrong with the way that looking through the eyes like a, of an innocent child is seeing innocence and happy happiness and brightness. Like, it's okay, yes, you have to know what's going on in the world, but sometimes you also have to look at the good side of, of the world, and that's what kids try to do, because we, like, adults, we adults, and I, I know I do this sometimes, too, as being a librarian with the children, I sometimes, like, you know, I want them to think realistically, but then I'm like, well, they're just, they're children, they're let them enjoy this. Like I actually could learn something from them. So it, it, it's, that's what I got from this book. It's like there are times to be an adult, but there's no problem. And there's no reason that you can't think like a child because it actually gives you, you know, peace of mind and serenity. And it gives you something else to think about. I really like that. And you know what it also makes me think is I feel like as you get older, at least in our culture, which is a very individualistic culture, like we often think we have to be able to do everything and we have to do everything alone and we have to be able to only rely on ourselves. And I think also tapping into thinking like a child, just as much as it's very good to be someone who is, who can take care of yourself and also help to take care of other people. It also is a good reminder that like we all need each other too. And there are always people there to help you like no matter what. And um, that's some of the most beautiful, that's, that's some of the most, some of the most beautiful experiences you'll have are the experiences of being helped by other people. Mm-hmm. So that just made me think of that too. So thank yeah. you. You're welcome. <laughs> all right, let's get into this chapter. So okay. chapter 31 Mm -hmm. the chapter starts and we learn that Anne does have a great summer and we learn that the doctor told Marilla to let Anne be outdoors because she he thought she looked like she could use it and so Marilla in her Marilla fashion goes straight to catastrophizing like worst case scenario Anne's gonna die of consumption so she just like lets her do whatever and Anne has the best summer and it's so funny because like Marilla is such a practical person but she is such a worrier and it's like yeah. she won't she doesn't even say it to people out loud but like internally she is just always prepared for the worst <laughs> you know so but i think that's like going back to what we originally said like like the 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 relationship and um mm-hmm. the attachment mm-hmm. that she has to Anne. she wouldn't have been able to be a warrior if her like because of that that love that she feels for Anne. Because I mean, people can say, oh, she's being a worry war. It's like, no, she loves Anne. That's right. like, like you know, the yeah. feeling, the emotion of her loving Anne. Like, she is starting to care about her and her well being. And that's like, you know, completely different from how um, she felt towards the beginning of the book. Yeah, she worries because she loves her and she doesn't want anything to happen to her. There's this interesting moment too where Anne tells Marilla that um, Mrs. Lynde keeps saying that Mr. Allen is such a good minister that he's going to get like scooped up and taken to some city. And Anne says, I don't see the I don't see the use of meeting trouble halfway. So in, like right after we get this like worry moment from Marilla and saying, I don't see the, the use of meeting trouble halfway, which I love that phrase, but I just find it kind of funny because then later in the chapter, she's starting, she talks about all the things that she's worrying about. <laughs> so it's kind of like the paradox of Anne. Like there are so many different parts of her and sometimes they totally don't like, yeah, they're no, kind of in contradiction. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it also shows her being human. Because you, it's just like how the human mind works. Like, oh, I don't want to like, you know, touch that. 
what seems like trouble. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I could be worrying about this. And what, what if this happens? What if this happens? And your mind like wanders, like that's just the human mind going, like working overtime to me. So I think that just makes her more realistic that her mind and also just being Anne because her mind is just pinpointing from one, one point to another. Yeah. And her worries that she talks about in this chapter are very existential. She says, um, there are so many things to be thought over and decided when you're beginning to grow up. I feel it's a great responsibility because I only have one chance. And we learn that Anne is, has gotten quieter. She's not asking as many questions or talking as much or using big words. So she's mm-hmm. definitely in this kind of contemplative phase of her young adulthood. And I was, I was just curious how those things kind of landed with you. Um, it actually um, brought me back to my own adolescent years because when, because at this point she's like a teenager. So she's starting to like, you know, grow up. and it's like, cause since I'm a teen librarian, I see a lot of teen when um, middle grade come into um, middle graders come into the teenage phase, they're more quiet and standoffish. They're like, you know, more reserved. It's reserved may not be the right word. They're more introspective. They're more thinking about um, the world around them. There might be like a little bit of part of like peer pressure because like when you're a teenager, I know I felt this way and I was told this way, told these things like, oh, you need to leave those childish things behind. You're, you know, you're starting to mature. And I still, and I think this is like where Anne is starting to see those things kind of way. Cause she's starting to like, you know, be introspective. She's being a teenager. She's like, you know, starting to think about um, more serious things according to her like she's more focused on her grades because she really wants to be able to pass this big examination and then um she's more she's less like there was a part where it says oh i don't use as many um big words as much i use shorter words to get my points across so and it just made me think about like i was kind of like that as a teenager because if i was if there was something I need to say um, eloquently or to be articulate, um, articulate um, in something, then I would like say it internally or I would write it down, but I would never say it out loud. I would just give, you know, short answers like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, yeah, I was being a teenager. So that really brought me back to my own teenage years. Yeah. And it's interesting how she says like, you know, I don't really want to be laughed at when she was younger and she would use big words or tell stories and people would laugh at her. She didn't like it, but it's like, I wonder if now as she's growing up and she's kind of trying to learn about herself and kind of become her own person, she just doesn't want that feedback from people. And she doesn't, maybe she feels a little bit more self-conscious and she just doesn't want people laughing at her or now that she's taking herself and her future seriously, as you're saying, and thinking about these serious things and she doesn't want people like belittling that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also think she, when it comes to like not using the big words and writing, you know, short words and sentences to get her point across, it's like she has moved from just the sheer enjoyment and pleasure an appreciation of like just using beautiful flowery language that's appealing to her to like, okay, you have to kind of produce something. It has to have a goal. It has to have a purpose, it, you know, and I kind of feel on the fence about Miss Stacy. Sometimes there are things I really like about her as a teacher. Like even in this chapter, we learn that Mrs. Lind doesn't like her because she wants to let her students kind of like go off the beaten path and learn things for themselves. But sometimes she can be really strict and like she tells Anne like Anne is like oh I always I never thought I never I always thought my compositions were good until I had to start looking for what was wrong with them and Miss Stacy tells her to be her own harshest critic Mm -hmm. and like there is something to that but 
sometimes I feel like Miss Stacy is like a little bit harsh. I mean, I don't know. How do you how do you feel about that? I would have to disagree. I think maybe because I've had a teacher who's like that, who's like, oh, okay, like you are your own heart, your own harshest crit- critic. Um, but I think she's trying to let Anne find her own voice in her in in her in her conversations in her work um i think she's trying to bring that out a little bit more i don't think she i don't and because maybe she is a little bit it could be perceived as being um harsh but i think also she's just trying to know you know bring out that um individuality that we know that Anne could have you know so I remember working in the writing center in college and reading people's essays and you could always tell the people who didn't know what they were talking about because they just used flowery language to try to sound like they were saying something and they weren't saying anything like they used big words to cover for the fact that they weren't saying anything. <laughs> so there's wisdom to it. Um, yeah. But I guess I'm just like I'm reacting to the the sadness of and just growing up and kind of losing some of that. You know, yeah. I think she's just trying to bring out Anne's voice and she knows that it's there and she's trying to bring it out more. So she's trying to give her that little push and a little guidance into a way that she can, I think, probably still have that maybe not like a direct flowery language, but still have that like magical way of telling um let's say in this case a story and capturing people's attention and still have that imaginative spark that we all know and love Dan. yeah and there's definitely something too like you have to clarify your ideas and if you're trying to communicate something to people you have to use clear writing and if she believes that Anne is a very you know and we've learned that she's a very smart person um sometimes you have to kind of master certain rules before then you can start to play with them and put your own kind of flourish on it. Um, but it's interesting because I think that sadness that I feel about Anne growing up is uh, Marilla feels it too in this chapter. Like she notices that Anne has gotten taller and she notices, you know, like that she's quieter. She doesn't have the story club anymore and all these things and Anne's socializing more. So she's out of the house more and she's going to be going to Queens most likely in mm-hmm. a year. And so, and she actually cries. Um, she lets herself cry and she doesn't even really want to be comforted by Matthew being, it's funny because like Marilla always acts like she's the practical one and Matthew like gets, you know, in the past she'll be like, Oh, she thinks that Anne has this like, sway with Matthew and then Matthew's the one who's like she'll be home a lot you know like she'll come home on breaks she'll be here and Marilla's the one that's like shut up like <laughs> it's not the same you know <laughs> she doesn't even want to be comforted but I I you know there is something to that that grief that she's feeling over like the era that's ending and the new one that's mm-hmm. beginning but then again we still and so we start to see that connection that she has with Anne because in the beginning of the book you did not see any of that and now Marilla is starting to grow and all that emotion of seeing her growing up that is what a parent feels when they see their child growing up and going to start leaving the nest and so she's it's just that emotion of love that she's like you know it she's feeling and it's coming out and maybe instead of probably before the book early on the book she would have kept it down but and probably she would have allowed Matthew uh, Matthew's rationality like to say oh yeah he's right but no she's allowing it to say no you're crazy what is wrong with you like she's allowing that emotion to come out a little bit more Yeah. And I think there are two other moments in this chapter where Marilla's growth and how Anne has softened her a bit really show. One of them is a really small moment. Anne is thanking Marilla for making her this beautiful green dress with a flounce. And she says, 
I know I'll be able to study better because of mine, her flounce. I shall have such a comfortable feeling deep down in my mind about that flounce. And Marilla says it's worth something to have that. So not only does she make her a beautiful dress with a flounce that is not necessary, it's purely decorative and it's green. It's not black. It's not a somber plain dress like the ones she always made for her before Matthew, you know, got had her had Mrs. Lynn make her that dress for Christmas. So not only is she making her that of her total own volition, she also admits like she doesn't she doesn't snap at Anne or say something snarky when she says like that the flounce will give her like peace of mind and help her to be a better student. Like she's like, yep, that's good. (laughs) I love that. I know. She's like, I'm accepting of that. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's like, again, her growing because she would have, like, said, don't think of, like, foolish things and stuff like that. No, she's accepting of it and just realizing, like, yes, and maybe this was, like, Anne's way of um, saying thank you yeah. for, you know, doing this for me and, and, and that statement was of, um, that Marilla gave it's her way of saying, you're welcome. I care about you. So it's just like yeah. a very, like a great reflection of their relationship. She wants to make her happy. Marilla wants yeah. to make her happy. And so she's willing to do something that in the past she would have been like, oh, that's a waste, right? Exactly. But, and the other thing that's a great moment is I, this is, and we're kind of working, you know, um, backwards from the end to the beginning of the chapter, but Towards the beginning of the chapter, Anne is saying that Mrs. Lind makes her want to be bad or makes her want to be wicked. So she says, like, when I'm with you or Miss Stacy or Mrs. Allen, I want to do good. But when I'm with Mrs. Lind, I want, like, the temptation to be wicked is irresistible. And Marilla actually, A, laughs and B says, yeah, same. That's how I feel too. And like nagging should be one of the cardinal sins or however she says it. (laughs) And I just thought that was so funny, but it's like Marilla used to always hold in her laughter. Like Mm -hmm. she never used to laugh. She never would have said, yeah, I, I'm tempted to be wicked around her too. You know, like she, and she kind of quickly says like, oh, I shouldn't say that she's a good Christian woman. You know, she catches herself, but she has that moment with her. And I'm just curious, like, do you relate to what Anne is saying about wanting to be good around these people like Mrs. Allen, like Miss Stacy, like Marilla, and feeling irresistibly tempted to be wicked around someone like Mrs. Lind, who is so, like, rigid and righteous and judgmental? I mean, there's always that person that you encounter in your life that just makes you want, like, brings out a naughty side of you. I think, I think Anne has just encountered that person. It may not be a person that in our minds that we have thought it would be because when you think of someone who's going to um, bring out the naughty side of you, your bad side, it's not someone who's rigid and, you know, like, uh, um, someone regal and who was like by the book or something like that um, is always something like you know who's free and open who's willing to do whatever um, they want and whatever you want so I think that part just stood out because it's just two personalities that you think it would be reversed you would think Miss Lynn would be like you know the naughty person like who would feel naughty anytime Anne was around you wouldn't think it would be Anne so I think that's why like the personalities are reversed that's why it's just so notable because you wouldn't really give it a second thought yeah it's like I feel like Anne really respects and looks up to Miss Stacy and Mrs. Allen and Marilla and she admires them. She wants to be like them. So she feels like inspired, like, oh, I'm going to do like them. I want to be like them. And with Mrs. Lind, she doesn't want to be like her, you know? So she's like, well, if she's telling me to do that and by doing that, I'm going to end up like her, 
I want to do the opposite. <laughs> that is also a good point because she doesn't really like, she likes her, but she doesn't want to be like her. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's just like, I never thought of it that way. So yeah, that's a good point. And I feel like it's like the way that people make you feel about yourself too. Like, I feel like Mrs. Lind makes her feel like, and you're hopeless. So like, all right, I guess I'll just do whatever then, you know, like where Mrs. Allen and Miss Stacy are like, they believe in her and they encourage her and they tell her like what she's good at and what's good about her. So she like believes in herself more. And when Mrs. Lind is just constantly like, you're a wicked girl. She's like, all right. (laughs) you know like I'm actually trying really hard so I guess I may as well just not try if you're gonna keep telling me how wicked I am I may as well have fun with it right (laughs) she's just like conforming to the idea that Miss um Miss Lind like has for us like you think I'm wicked like all right I'm wicked let's do some wicked things (laughs) (laughs) yeah I read this um memoir recently called Wild in the Hollow by Amber Haynes And she talks about like growing up in a really strict religious environment. Like, I think they weren't even allowed to listen to like secular music, like that kind of strict religious environment. But this, like she's in her forties now. So this was like in the eighties or nineties or whatever. Um, And she said like, she kind of felt like, well, I can never be as good as these like other church people. So if I'm going to go to hell, like I might as well have a fun time getting there. And she like went really wild for a couple of years because she was like, well, if I'm going to hell anyway, because I can never live up to your standards. I'm like, I may as well just do whatever I want. <laughs> Everyone has like a little bit of a bad side to them that, that just wants to be let out. And it's not intent. It's not like intentionally like doing something like illegal or unlawful it's just like you know a little naughty thing but I do agree with you that Anne I don't think Anne really looks up to Miss Lynn because she doesn't want to be her she wants to be like Miss Stacy like Marilla so um that's why she is good around them more than Miss um Miss Lynn yeah because like we learned that Miss Stacy is like she wants students to take the, you know, the less beaten path. But Mrs. Lind, like the the conversation about her starts because Anne is saying, you know, why can't women be ministers? Like women are the ones who do all the work in the church anyway. Like men have all this influence as the ministers. Why can't women be? And she says that Mrs. Lind is like horrified at the thought. And she's like, I heard that they do that in the States. And I'm just like glad they're not doing that in Canada. Like Mrs. Lind definitely has this very, you know, conservative um part of her that is very stifling i think and it's it's interesting to see the feminism in montgomery come out it through Anne's voice of like why can't women be ministers like they do all the work anyway like you know women often have to do so much work and i like that she kind of threw that in there like why can't they be ministers they're the ones who like raise money and like organize the church picnics and like all that stuff and while the man just stands there on a pulpit. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, no, that was very interesting. And it's just like, it shows like Miss Lynn's Victorian prim and proper personality. But also um, it was that statement that Anne gave, it was showing an emerging world because if it was happening in the States, it could like, you know, start to come to Canada. And it's just like how the world is evolving. And and also that statement showed how this book is still so relevant today because even in the 21st century, there are still like positions, even though that women can have them, they don't have the respect and the prominence that men do have in those similar positions. So it, just that, Show, uh, seeing, reading that statement and seeing how much of an effect it had on me when I, when I re- read it, it just shows that how a lot of the classics, even though that they're like 100 years, like from 100 years, they can still be relevant to the 21st century. Yeah, because a lot of things have changed, but like a lot of, a lot of things haven't really changed or haven't, haven't changed as much as we would 
like, like these things run really deep, especially when it comes to like gender roles and things like that. So yeah, it does, it does still, it, and still women do a lot of labor that often goes, is kind of invisible and they don't, they aren't, they don't have as much power in places where they do a lot of the work and the labor, but they don't have as much power and influence and yeah. Mm -hmm. Anne talks in this one about her existential questions and moral questions and um, her test anxiety, worrying about the exam that's coming up and kind of some of these, as you said, like getting quieter, more reflective and contemplative and introspective. So I'm just curious when you think about your 15 year old self, what were some of the wicked things you were tempted to do or what what were some of the questions that you were spending a lot of time thinking about or what was a milestone coming up in your life that you felt like there was so much riding on? Um, do any of the experiences that Anne is having in this chapter like really resonate with you when you think about your 15 year old self? Definitely. <laughs> um, like, um, I, I was I, like tempted to like cut school, but I was just like so scared of, from my, of my parents, definitely. And also I went to a Catholic school. So cutting school from a Catholic, from Catholic school, that's, that's tough work. Um, but, um, also when I was 15, I, um, I had to take the New York state regents and like, there was like a lot riding on it, even though I had to take many regents in the next couple of years in my high school, um, high school years. Um, this one was like my first major big test that would always stay in my record. And it really determined if you pass the class because if you fail the regents, you fail the entire class. So it was very stressful and it was on a subject. It was biology that it was not very like strong in, I'm not strong in sciences. Please do not have me mix any chemicals. <laughs> you, <laughs> you don't want a house or anything. Um, so yeah, I was not, that was not my strong subject. So I was a nervous wreck on that I would study so much and I still didn't feel confident. I was like very reserved, very, you know, focused on my schoolwork. So seeing her, seeing Anne doing that, that made me think about when I was 15 because I was exactly like that. And it was just like, it was um, reflective and also a little bit sad because that is when you lose that, you know, innocence mentality. It's like, it's already starting on you so young. You have to be an adult. Like if people think like, oh, when you turn 18, that's when you're an adult. Like, no, that's when you're officially adult because you can do a lot of things. You know, when you're a teenager, they put a lot of pressure on you to do these things that you um when you're a really adult you think oh well that that's nothing but no it, it is a lot of pressure to put on a young person on a young mind and thinking um when um thinking about that and reading that about Anne's journey to um to try to get into queens that really made me think about when um I was um, doing the regents, not just the biology, but the um, the other regents that were going to um, be upcoming. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the reason Anne says in this chapter, oh, I have to grow up right because I only get one shot is because a, a lot of us are given that message, as you're saying, in your teen years of like, all right, if you don't do well in school now and you don't do you know, if you don't do well on this test, like your whole future is going to be ruined. And I don't know why people, I, I mean, I, I understand to an extent, like I understand the value of studying hard and doing your best, but that kind of black and white concrete, like fatalistic mentality does put so much pressure. Yeah, no, because um, 
Because, like, when Anne says, oh, I'm quite a grown-up, but not really, but I have the responsibilities of a grown-up, that is, like, the response, like, that is, like, the pressure that a lot of teenagers get when they become a teenager. Because when you're, like, let's say 10, 11, 12, you see a lot of teenagers on TV. So you have this, like, perception of how how your teenage years are going to be like and then when you hit te- when you hit your teen years you start to realize that okay t- tv is not really a true reflection of that and um it's just like a sh- like um i'm going to use the term culture shock even though it's um used if you're like study abroad and you're going to a, a different country um than your home one but um it is a term that can be used in this situation because you you watch tv you see how teenagers are on on tv shows and then when you um come up to your teenagers you have this expectation but it's not meeting them but people um like have a different look on you they respect you more because you're a teenager they but so since they respect you more they're giving you more responsibilities so you have societal expectations you have family expectations and also you have expectations from for yourself because you are entering this new um world of being a teenager and you're also trying to figure out who you are, but then you're also trying to meet the expectations of everyone around you, including yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. Little it's Anne really is dealing fun. with. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to get philosophical. No, I love it. That's my <laughs> that's my literal favorite thing to get. Okay. Philosophical. <laughs> I have to ask. If you had cut school when you were 15, okay. where would you have gone? Oh, God. I would have been a nerd. I would have gone to the library. <laughs> <laughs> to the library. <laughs> That's I, fantastic. Yeah. I would have gone to the library. I am not an interesting person. <laughs> <laughs> you just didn't want to be in school. I really didn't. <laughs> I really, really didn't. <laughs> yeah. I feel you. well thank you thank you for taking time to have this conversation and to read and I really appreciate your thoughts thank you this is amazing I always love talking about Anne so anytime (laughs) if your mom wants to come to come on and talk about Anne let me know okay I will try to convince her (laughs) 